What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. How can you fight the wind? How can you smash the mountains? How can you bury the ocean? How can you escape from the light? Of course, you can go to the dark, but they're in the dark, too. We may have to wait for John Wick 4 to see Keanu smash the mountains. For now... We'll have to settle for the metaphor. You can't bury the ocean, Adam. That's Angelica Houston in John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, with Keanu Reeves returning as the world's greatest assassin and the world's greatest dog lover. We've got a review of the Wick, plus, whoa, our top five Keanu Reeves moments. It's all ahead. I know Kung Fu. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. We've devoted top fives to a single actor's career a few times in the past. Our favorite scenes or moments. Most recently, we gave Ethan Hawke that treatment. But we've also done Tom Cruise, Kristen Stewart, Robert De Niro, and unfortunately, on the occasion of a couple of passings, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Robin Williams paying tribute to them. It's much more fun to do it when they're alive and as vital, certainly, as Keanu Reeves is. Maybe not the next name you would expect in that list, but we're going to make the case, I think, that he belongs. Absolutely. And other than on the occasion of very deserving actors who may have passed away recently, it's pretty random. And given how random it is, it's only very recently that Keanu would even be considered for a career retrospective like this. How much can we credit John Wick for that? Or is it just Keanu's staying power? He has been in the business for over 30 years and has, at this point, I think something like 92 credits listed on IMDb. I know we've seen every single one of those, right, Josh? Oh, yes. That's all I've been watching. Keanu all the time. (laughs) We will have our top five Keanu Reeves moments later in the show. But first, our review of John Wick, Chapter 3. Adam, I'd feel more comfortable doing this if you'd put that pencil down. You have no idea what's coming. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. Nice suit. Good to see you, too. So, Josh, as best as I can remember, John Wick, Chapter 2, Keanu Reeves spent at least half the running time of that film with a bounty on his head in New York City with assassins attacking him left and right. And this movie, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum, seems to pick up pretty much exactly where that movie left off. He has been given a little bit of a head start, but has been excommunicated from this this system that they all seem to exist under the rule of the high table. He's been excommunicated from that. And it's crazy how this movie begins and how he spends most of its running time pretty much with a bounty on his head trying to survive against assassins who are attacking him from everywhere and most of it in New York City even. So there's a lot of familiar ground here in Parabellum. And this was pretty easy as far as coming up with a setup question for you because I already came up with it a few weeks ago when we did 
our summer movie preview. My number two question of the summer movie season was, will John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum continue the mythologizing of Chapter 2 or get back to the mystery of John Wick? In other words, would this movie, like the second one for me, get too caught up in all of the rules and regulations of the high table and the secret society or stick to the enigma that is John Wick and his motivations and his quest not only for survival but for some kind of meaning. But I'm going to table that one. You're welcome to answer it. But listeners are going to hear us in a short time extol the virtues of Keanu Reeves as a screen actor. They're going to hear our top five Keanu Reeves moments. And spoiler alert, we're both going to have a scene from John Wick in our top five. What I'm curious about is whether there's a single moment from Chapter 3 Parabellum that would be in contention if you had time now to completely rethink your list. No. (laughs) I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah, I don't think this is making the best use of Reeves. I think it's coasting on what it managed to get from him, primarily in John Wick and a little bit in the second film. I think this is definitely a case of diminishing returns. I'm not putting that on him as much. I think he's bringing his all to this, especially in some of these fight sequences There's one in an antique weapon shop, Mm -hmm. I I think it is, uh, after hours where he comes up against a bunch of these bad guys and they just start breaking the glass of the display cases and grabbing whatever they can to fight each other, mostly knives, hatchets. I don't know if we get to an axe. I think it may (laughs) stop at hatchet. Um, To my relief at that point, not a lot of gunplay yet. And so there's a, a very sort of tactile, visceral element to that fight scene and Reeves is amazing in it, as mm-hmm. are the other stuntmen attacking him. It's a prolonged scene, uh, a lot of single takes, but also the returning director, Chad Stahelski, knowing when to cut and just give us full bodies in motion. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with his stunt background, this is something he's brought to the series overall. Now, I also noticed something in that scene that happens at the end And kind of sets the table for where a lot of this movie goes. And it ties to your question about Reeves and how the movie uses Reeves. There's what I'm going to call, you know, kill shot is a phrase Mm. we're familiar with. I'm sensing that this movie is relying more on what I'm going to call a kill gag. And I'm not going to give that one away. But that sequence ends with it's you can imagine what I mean. It's Mm -hmm. it's a kill shot that's meant sort of as a joke, but also as an elevation of what we've come to expect from this series in terms of gore a little bit, the extremity of the violence, um, where the victim is being stabbed. Mm -hmm. I don't think it undercuts that scene entirely, but there's a later scene I am going to give away, another fight sequence in a stable. And here, John Wick, I don't know if he like slaps the horse or does something to get the the horse to kick the assailant and basically bash his head in. To me, that that is, I know we don't use the phrase jump the shark anymore, but that's the kill gag where I feel like John Wick has, has kind of gone off track. And here's why. It's not using Reeves. It's no longer, at that point, the fight scene is less about Wick. It's not about his motivations. It's not about his anger. It's not about his technique. Mm -hmm. These are all things we're going to talk about in our top five, what Reeves brings as an action figure. It's just more about the violence itself. 
it's about the shock of that moment, trying to top previous moments in terms of the unexpected nature, um, the use of something as a weapon. And I think the more kill gags we get, the less Reeves we get. Yeah. And that's to the series detriment. Yeah, there's a lot of repetition of those kill gags. And I'll confess, I didn't really mind that first horse moment. I actually thought it was kind of funny. It and is we'll because talk... it, it surprises you. And... It surprises you. And we'll talk maybe a little bit more about the humor here in just a moment. But when it's then repeated at least a second time and maybe even a third time, and then there's another sequence we'll talk about where dogs are used. And of course, that's yeah. very self-referential because yeah. that's where this all started. You know what? I should back up and say the kicking isn't really my objection. Sure. It was the It's when he jumped on the horse had the guy tied around the neck and goes riding off like a cowboy. Okay. For me, that was the jump the shark really? moment. Yeah, that was, that was the like, uh, I don't know. It just, it had achieved a level of silliness, but hmm. sorry, go ahead. Then. Well, there's a lot of silliness here. And I think for the most part, I responded to it at least early on. Right near the beginning, there is a billboard where we see Buster Keaton. And if I'm remembering correctly, I could be crazy, but... There's a similar reference to Buster Keaton at the beginning of chapter two. And I don't know if that was something that was in the first John Wick or this is something Stahelski as a director has decided to throw in there. But it does put you in a certain mindset. And that entire opening that you talked a little bit about where they go into the antique weapon store and even before that and some of the stuff after there was an absurdist comedic tone to the brutality and the violence that I responded to. And I was thinking a little bit about Buster Keaton, frankly, watching Wick constantly get in over his head and those odds absurdly against him and having to find a way physically to get out of situations that in a way, maybe I'm giving the film and Stahelski too much credit, but that did remind me of Keaton a little bit. And I even loved how the first two fights, if you notice, and I think it's only these first two, they didn't have any music bed to them whatsoever. So, it's just the first one being in the stacks of the New York Public Library, and he's fighting someone who's at least a foot taller than him. The NBA's Boban. <laughs> there you go. And all you hear are the sounds of their punches, their breathing, the way that they are crashing into the bookshelves, and that elevated, in a way, the humor. And it also elevated the violence at the same time for me. Right? Yeah, that's it, something it, it this series has been good at, is letting has. us hear the punches so we feel them more. That's it. Yeah. And the second fight, that whole sequence, shockingly didn't have any music underneath it either. I thought maybe that was going to be an approach that the filmmakers were going to take and that might actually work throughout this entire film. That opening, that first 20 minutes or so, was so effective for me that I was literally commenting out loud making noises in reaction out loud to the movie and the craziness of it the same way the entire theater around us was. I never do that with a film. It really was a lot of fun. And I remember the exact point for me where all that fun just completely went away. Yeah. And I wonder if it's the same place it did for you. It sounds like you had a similar reaction, maybe on board early on yeah. and then got pretty tired of those are the two highlights what you mentioned okay. the library fight scene yep. for, for exactly the reasons you're talking about also stahelski's use of the camera this is throughout he always keeps it very low yeah uh, we see it's almost from like a boot side point of view characters are introduced that way the camera's on the street a lot and uh Obviously, with Boban, who's so tall, he he really there's a there's a move he makes where the camera is kind of like on his waist and then keeps following up his back, up his torso, just keeps going. And then we see, you know, here the camera's up high and then we see Reeves looking like, you know, a miniature guy mm -hmm. uh, in the background. But there's 
a lot of interesting camera placement in those two fight scenes, and and they do stand out for the audio elements, for the precision, for the length of the one, as I mentioned, sure. the weapon shop. And yes, I think I felt like I was done in the Halle Berry sequence. That's it. And yep. I didn't know she was in this. I'm not sure. I haven't seen her in a while. Maybe she's been doing work that I've just missed. Mm-hmm. But I was glad to see her. Sure. It was like Halle Berry. That you know, th- great. What? Let's see what Halle. And okay, she's she doesn't bring much herself, but I don't think the sequence does much for her because it sort of tries to turn her into. For one thing, it never really defines who she is. We're back to your problem with the rules mm-hmm. and this world and who has she's what. Just role a manager and what? Yeah, exactly. I, I think. To quickly answer your question, yes, it gets way too bogged down in it that does. stuff, even more than in mm-hmm. Chapter 2. And so we're not sure what her motivations are, entirely what her relationship is. And then it pretty much throws her into a sequence where it's a lot of gunplay. Uh, we start getting that. It tries to make her uh, a feminine version of John Wick, where she uses yeah. a lot of the same moves. So much so that he's completely sidelined. He's sidelined. And the only distinction they bring in is that she has these guard dogs who yes. she uses as... Obviously, with the dog lore that's come into this series, I think they've reached their tipping point for using dogs as jokes and references. Yeah. This is kind of just an over-the-top. And the defense of the movie is going to be, of course, it's over-the-top. Mm-hmm. These have all been over-the-top. Right. But the balance has tipped here. And I think it tips in that sequence where he and Halle Berry's character are, for reasons we're not entirely clear, taking on another army. They have some past. It's, yeah. They have some vague past. And it's just a lot of shooting, and I I just physically checked out. Yeah, I did too. That's exactly the moment. The movie becomes suddenly almost a first-person shooter game. I yeah, felt like I does. was just the camera following, that on. I was yeah. following the gun almost more than anything, and you lost everything that early in the film and in the previous John Wick films, the best sequences are all about that, that camera movement and the real-time sort of verisimilitude of it that blows your mind that they're even capturing some of these feats of physicality. And there, it really does become about the volume of kills, it felt to me, more than anything else. There was nothing truly inventive about what we were seeing. It was, let's watch Halle Berry destroy a whole lot of people in fairly non-creative ways. And sure, there's some tracking shots, or at least there's some sort of following her through that. But again, for me, it was the sensation of of watching someone play a shooter game, which is not what I came to John Wick to experience. No, it's not really what we've been, despite all the gunfights previously, it's not what we've been given before. And uh, I just want to connect that to what I feel is, um, you know, a scene that left me even colder, and it's the climactic one, which is another gunfight where things just get amped up even more because a kill team at this point has come after John Wick. He's holed up in a hotel and they show up wearing like this body armor mm-hmm. and helmets. Basically, bullets aren't going to do yeah. anything. So we just them. need more bullets. So we need and more bullets ones. and bigger guns. And, you know, it's just a higher powered mentality. And I, I've got to say, if if I had an issue with the fetishizing of guns in The Matrix when we recently revisited it, yes. it was one thing that gave us pause that we admitted since 99. Mm-hmm. You know, it it should have – I feel like it should have rubbed me the wrong way in 99. Sure. And, and it maybe did a little bit but not as much as I feel it should have. Now in 2019, it, it really does – and that's essentially what we get here. We get the quip about more guns. I need bigger guns. Well, something it's a like direct that. reference to the Matrix. I think it is. It's the line. It's it's a yeah. I, I think it it's is the line. Pretty much pulled from it. 
and um, it's just kind of deadening. And it's I, I'm not trying to be. I don't want to be hypocritical about it because I'm not a guy who complains every time guns sure. are used in a movie. I don't want to be moralistic about it, but it's just how my gut felt watching well, this. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. In that moment where they're directly referencing The Matrix and then they're just amping up the fetishizing of the gunplay, the question I was asking myself and haven't fully answered yet is, is this the deal we just make with ourselves when we enter the theater? When you buy a ticket to John Wick yeah. or you decide to discuss this movie, do you simply have to accept the gun craziness? These are the consequences, as we hear a lot in the movie. Mm-hmm. There are consequences to your actions. You knew what you were getting into. You made the choice anyway. Guess what? That's the film. On some level, I feel like I could accept that. But the reality of sitting through it in real time and watching them repeat a lot of the same gags as far as now we're going to check out this gun. We're going to tell you what this gun does. It's just so redundant and so tedious. And that ties back to another issue I have with the film, which is it's basically guilty in my mind of doing what. I know some people are critical of Endgame and the MCU movies doing, which is it's really no longer about anything but itself. John Wick has completely, and this gets back to the the rules and the high table yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. It has now completely, this universe has completely folded in on itself. And it is now about the audience reacting to the winks, the Matrix yes. reference, because it's Keanu Reeves. All the references we get in the film to everyone knowing John Wick. Yes. It was great in the first film where they were talking about him and we hadn't even really met him yet or we didn't know what he was capable of. Now it's just a stale joke. People sort of being in awe of John Wick, the Baba Yaga references. We get at least one here. All the dog references. John Wick is now just about John Wick. And that's not yeah. interesting enough for me. It's just not. I'm going to get to that's tied to two things I did like about the movie. However, I don't think the whole mythology stuff, I don't think it's a plus. It doesn't necessarily bother me quite as much as it does you. I, I think it is a hindrance, but they're having some fun with it in ways I want to get to. But I want to jump back because it's a really provocative question you pose. And I don't want to dodge it, even though I don't have an answer. So bear with me. But do we make this deal with the devil if we're going to go see this movie? And it's tied to, you know, me saying I I don't criticize every movie that uses guns. So what's the difference here for me? The distinction from the first John Wick, it goes back to how those scenes are are staged and how we do feel the violence and the repercussions. Mm -hmm. And the more guns you involve, the bigger guns you involve, you're removing yourself further and further from that. So it does become... The violence is less real. There's less impact to it. It's it's becoming meaningless. And yes. to me, that's when it, it begins to bother me personally. And there's also something about, you know, especially the plot point here where it's all about getting bigger guns and more powerful guns. Just the way the gun debate is in this country uh, – that's like an argument that could easily be borrowed. Like, well, we're we're not safe. We just need bigger guns. And I'm sorry when you're when you're sitting in a world and, and hearing about another attack at a school or something. It's just hard to also sit in a movie where that is what the scene becomes about mm-hmm. the actual firearm itself and the coolness of its potency. Uh, it's just, it makes my stomach turn. And why doesn't it in other movies that involve guns 
maybe I'm a hypocrite there. Well, even the first John Wick, it's for all the reasons you said. It's because of how it fits into the story and the character and how inventive they are with it, how playful they are with it. This becomes, no pun intended, deadening. This whole yeah, film yeah. after that point, once Halle Berry's sequence is introduced and it really truly becomes about the gunplay, it's deadening. And I will say anyway, I'm not speaking for our theater, but you felt it in the theater. That energy that was there, the sort of response back to the screen, yeah. it was gone the more that the gunplay and the bloodshed picked up. You said it becomes meaningless. That's absolutely true. And I would say that's the problem ultimately with this entire film, including that they have overloaded it with a lot of religious iconography and different symbols that I think Stahelski wants to sort of qualify as as something profound or at least something to sort of hang it all on. Yeah. And, and the only thing that I keep coming back to or I want to hang my hat on is there's something inherently compelling about the idea as we get back to this notion of rules in this yes. society that in a lot of ways, it's no different, of course. It's a parallel to our own society and that there are codes and there are consequences of breaking those codes. But at the end of the day, it's all pretty flimsy. It's all hanging on everyone making an agreement that we're going to abide by these codes, that there's meaning only insofar as we decide to ascribe that meaning. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you decide we're not going to, then it's chaos. And that's what we see here. So that's the foundation of the film, without a doubt. Was it enough for me to justify having to sit through all the rest of the nonsense? No, it wasn't. I think there's some interesting stuff going on in terms of why does why does this evil empire, this evil society even need rules? Why are these rules so important to them? And what's what is the cost of of breaking them? What principles are going to make someone break them? I mean, mm -hmm. it's it turns into a bit of a resistance movie. Sure. When are you going to say that the ordered way of things has become so broken that it's time to resist. But we don't see really any of those decisions being made by this John is, Wick himself. This is He's the problem. He's such a passive he is. participant. And the this. rules are always changing. And yes. people are always breaking them. That's right. And there's not. I mean, they use consequence, you're right, is referred to a couple of times, but there's really nothing of consequence. Sure. Whatever each individual scene needs to happen depending on those rules, is going to happen so that there is no superstructure holding anything up. But the rules do make for two interesting characters that I did appreciate. And I want to get to some of the stuff that I did like about it. I don't okay. think this movie is a total loss. But Asia Kate Dillon plays, she's just called the adjudicator. Yes. So this is a representative of the high table, which is you know the highest authority of uh, this criminal society. And she just comes in. She doesn't look, you know, she's got the tattoos and the earrings. She kind of has the funky look of everyone, all of these assassins. Sure. But but she's slight. She's kind of polite in her mannerism. She's not imposing, right? Sure. And she just kind of issues the decrees and, and says, I like how they went the other direction with her, where she's kind of just like a stickler. She's mm -hmm. like that annoying little kid she's pretty much in the lawyer. back of the class, <laughs> yes, who, who's like telling on the other kids yes. who are like, you know, going up to sharpen their pencils. Yes. And I found her amusing. And I also thought this is a way where the movie is having fun at its own expense, recognizing all of these rules have gotten ridiculous and meaningless. And so they have something of a comedic character to, to, to poke fun at that. Hmm. The other character, 
who I liked. And this isn't so much to do with the rules, but it has to do with what you were talking about. John Wick's uh, legend. Exactly. Being self-referential. And I laughed at these moments. I know okay. where you're going. This Absolutely. is Mark DeCascos yes. playing a ninja assassin who is at once this lethal, skilled, he's really an imposing presence. Yes. And he's also a total Wick fanboy. Yes. <laughs> so he goes in and out of these lethal threats and, and kind of fawning over Wick. But this, there are problems here, too, because what are the rules with him? Like, in their climactic fight, he could have killed Wick like 10 times, right? I know. Certainly other people on the way to him even could have. Yeah. So you're wondering, Which again, like— makes it more meaningless. It does, because— I didn't even get that they were just wanting to test themselves against him. At, for a while, I thought, oh, they're on his. This shows you how yeah. meaningless these rules are. For a while, I thought those two guys were trying to kill him, had like for some reason become his bodyguards. It does become that confusing. It sounds like you did like those performances. or I like DeCascos. Okay. I do. I think he adds some much needed levity to how sort of heavy and overloaded this film kind of gets. It just kind of crumbles under its own weight. I think once it decides to go against the humor, at least in the way a lot of the big sequences are staged, we get some relief in some of those moments, like with his character. And I did laugh at those because of the performance. Again, really it's, good not, performance. it's not necessarily about the choice, but it's it's how it does it. Yeah. And here, it's not just that there's a lot of gunplay. It's how it's using the guns. And similarly with his character, I think because of the performance, he's really fun to watch every time he's on screen. I also got to say, this is a great lamp movie. The cinematographer here is Dan Laustsen. He's done a handful of Guillermo del Toro films, including Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water. So you can imagine just hearing those titles, how sure. this looks. Every room has an exquisite lamp somewhere in it, just perfectly glowing, interesting shape. I mean, there's a reason an early chase scene, they run through a chandelier shop, right? And I love the transition there. The primary color scheme of this series is, is neon, mm -hmm. right? Like kind of electric neon. And yes. they use that effectively throughout. And part of this chase scene is in the streets where we get a lot of those signs. There's It's always raining, so we get the glow, the reflections off the water. And then Wick takes a hard right into this chandelier shop, and suddenly we're in this – uh, this like soft glow of a old fashioned light. And I love the contrast there and the bad guys later come through it again and chase him. So some really beautiful lighting here. I don't know if that's what people are buying. I think people are probably more buying tickets for the guns, Sure, but I kind of liked the lamps. Well, and they even find an excuse to add neon lighting to the final big sequence that we've talked about and yes. mentioned that it's really not satisfying for either of us for no real compelling reason. Let's just go ahead and add some neon Doesn't green. he say, let's welcome yeah, our let's visitors, welcome and let's... that means turn on the neon. Because that's what John Wick is all about. But that does actually make me think about the choices there in that sequence and how they add the music. A character actually says in the welcoming them, we see him put on some music and it becomes this sort of operatic, almost like a ballet, yeah. which ballet is something else that's referenced multiple times in this film. And it feels like it's supposed to be this self-referential thing where he is commenting, the filmmaker, that all of this gunplay and action and the way the movement is captured should feel a little bit like that. And you know what? At its best, it does. It in does. this John earlier. Wick series. Yeah, earlier and in this certainly film. certainly early in this film. It never feels like that, though, even for a second in that sequence. It is so slow and leaden, and that's the last thing I expect from a John Wick movie. John Wick is out this weekend. It's in theaters 
pretty much everywhere. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. So Parabellum sounds like not going to grab a spot on our top five Keanu Reeves moments list. What moments will define his 30-plus year career? The Film Spotting Top 5 is coming up. Stay with us. True love to true love and rust to rust I let the others cast stones while I drew in the dust I tried to be a good man Something changes in the wind I got that old black magic Rolling in Wave upon wave now Here come the dreams And I can't see the lighthouse And the lighthouse can't scream man. Don't you know I need you so bad Tell me where the hell you been I got that old black magic Rolling in Rolling, rolling Rolling, rolling in I can't sleep for crying I cry all the time Everybody got an angel We wanted to take a quick moment here to thank all of our monthly donors, everyone who has subscribed to contribute some of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show, whether you're a $10 a month or a $5 or even a $2 a month. Every single cent is appreciated. And, of course, we have some single donors, including Matt, who wrote in Josh from Wooster, Mass. About six months ago, I started a project where I go back and watch the 40 highest-rated movies from each year. I have a complicated formula based on Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, etc. I've been going backwards, starting with 2017. My best picture was The Florida Project, 2016, Patterson, and now I'm in 2015, Force Majeure so far. All three very good picks. He mentions a complicated formula. Matt, may I interest you in film spotting madness? <laughs> Can we enlist your services perhaps to whittle down that list? He sounds like the right guy. Your show is the perfect companion to my project. After each movie, I listen to your review if you've covered the movie and then wrap up my year with your end of the year shows. It's great fun and it sounds like I will have your company as far back as 2008 or so and into the future as well. In any case, I've sent along 10 bucks, which is not nearly enough to compensate for all the entertainment and insights you've provided, but hopefully I can make it a regular thing. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for those kind words and for your support of the show. Of course, you can support the show in other ways that don't involve money. You can rate or review us over at Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, every review really does help us reach new listeners. We have a couple new ones here, Josh, from Z Hesting and from Nick 881024. Nick said that we walk the line between being knowledgeable enough about movies that movie buffs will appreciate it while covering the big movies and being silly enough that you could listen to this without knowing much about movies at all and still have a good time. I mean, that is the approach. We hope that, you know what, whether you're getting to all these movies and almost certainly most people listening are not getting to all these movies, it's still worth tuning in every week. So thank you to everyone who did leave us a review or rating over at iTunes. Again, every bit helps for us to reach new listeners. That's Chinese artist Ma Liang from the trailer for Our Time Machine, a documentary that was discussed on last week's show when we previewed the Chicago Critics Film Festival. Our friend Steve Procopi, one of the programmers of the fest, was here for that. The fest just kicked off this past Thursday, and it runs through the 23rd 
of the month. I think we both had it as our third most anticipated film of the fest. Certainly Sounds about right. up there high for both of us. In that clip, Leong is talking about an ambitious stage performance he's setting out to do. It's a collaboration with his aging opera director father who is suffering from Alzheimer's. He says, this is going to be a really difficult project, but I should be complex and it should be powerful. Josh, you did get a chance to catch up with this one over the weekend. We thought it had potential to be a Golden Brick nominee. That's our award every year to the best overlooked film of the year. Complex, powerful, either, both? Check, check, check. Yeah, it it hits all those. It's definitely a Golden Brick nominee. Really strong film. I encourage listeners in the Chicago area to seek it out at the fest. And, uh, you know, I think it's this, the stage show itself, the artistic elements here, these life-size mechanical puppets and the sets that are comprised of wildly inventive gears and pulleys. That's sort of the unique vision that it brings that we look for in a Golden Brick nominee. And the way the filmmakers, there are three directors on this project, weave that into their own films. So, for example, some of Leon's drawings and illustrations for the production, they will animate in certain segments to kind of bring that to life. So you really feel the artistry of this project, even though we don't end up seeing the entire production. It made me wish I could see this live. Obviously, it's finished its run. Um, But narratively, this basically traces two tragically intersecting trajectories. So you have this slow, tenuous upward path of the production itself. There's a lot of um, stumbling blocks to get this staged, and it is eventually slowly coming to fruition. At the same time, going in the opposite direction is his father's decline. Mm-hmm. And you you just, you're waiting, hoping that it will get to the stage in time. To give you an idea of, of how this goes, essentially at the beginning, he's able to talk to his father about the production and even get his feedback as a theater professional. And I won't give away where it ends, but it's a long way from there. And there's a moment that is absolutely crushing when you realize how far away it is. So this is a hard watch in some ways, but again, without giving anything away, I will say that um, through that artistic process, it, it's also energizing. And you can see how it energizes Liang, who's facing this. Mm-hmm. Um, very personal experience and how the art is helping him work his way through it. So definitely encourage listeners to check out Our Time Machine. It's playing here, as we said, at the Chicago Critics Film Festival this weekend, this Sunday, actually. That would be May 19th at 12.15 in the afternoon at the Great Music Box Theater. We will link to more information in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. Unfortunately, it doesn't currently have a theatrical release date, but hopefully there will be enough chatter about the film and when we find out more we will certainly share it next week on the show we're going to get back to our year-by-year countdowns with the top five films or maybe 10 we'll see of 1979 2019 of course the 40th anniversary of that movie year and i think we can say it was a pretty good one just a few great films released in 1979 and in fact our current film spotting poll is asking about a couple of those that are sure to be in contention for our list we asked you simply what is the best film of 79 and we narrowed it down to two alien or apocalypse now and of course if you're not a huge fan of either of those films or there's just a film from 79 you like a lot more you can vote other 
and write in your choice. So I don't know if I said last show, but I'm going with Apocalypse Now. I, I feel good about that. So we agree on that. Yep. And uh, I know that one of the titles that has come up in the other category is one I was able to catch up with. Did some homework. Being there. Hal mm-hmm. Ashby's being there. A lot of love out there for that film. I appreciate it greatly. I don't think I would vote for it over Apocalypse Now or Alien. Not sure it's going to make my top five either. We'll see when we hash things out next week. I have been getting strong encouragement, let's use that word, from film spotting listeners via email and social media to make sure I see being there before I do my list. And I have so far vowed that it will happen. Let's hope I can keep my promise. You can vote in that poll at filmspotting.net if you want to share your picks in advance or steer us in any direction, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, with your favorite film of 1979. You could also leave us a voicemail. It might just make the show, 312-264-0744. Real quick, I want to put out an early word for a June meetup that is going to be in the works. The Larson's family vacation, we're going to play Griswold's heading to Southern California. And so in L.A., I'm hoping to get together with listeners on Sunday, June 23, not sure exactly the time or the place. I think Mm -hmm. we're staying in the Venice Beach area. So longtime listeners like Brett Merriman, Jason Eakin, I will take your suggestions and I also hope to see you too. I've been chided for not heading out to LA in recent years and getting together with those guys and other listeners, ton of listeners who live in the area. So hopefully we'll get a good group together. Now, those are my friends. And well, we'll, I'm, we'll not, see what ha- I'm not really interested in sharing them. <laughs> see what happens after okay. June 23. Fine. Uh, filmspotting.net slash events is where we will put those details yes. when they get settled. So for now, just circle it on your calendar. Now, this whole ruse of having a meetup when you go on family vacation so that you'll get reimbursed for it, it's not going to work. Reimbursed? I just take the credit card. <laughs> That's the easiest way. I really need to pay more attention. A couple of bits of feedback on recent episodes. We don't get a chance much anymore to dive into the mailbag, and it's always fun when we can. I thought these were both worth sharing. As we wrapped up our Stanley Donnan Marathon, just on last week's show, we shared the Fizzies, our best of the Donnan Marathon Awards. And we got this from Jordan Wellen in Toronto, who was responding to something that came up in our discussion of the very first movie in the marathon, On the Town. And the decision by the producers to leave out some songs and to add some new ones. You won't find a bigger musical apologist than me, especially MGM musicals from the storied Freed unit of the studio, which On the Town was made under. I hadn't revisited the film in years and was thus appalled to reckon with how many of the truly great songs from the Broadway musical were cut. Case in point, I saw the marvelous Broadway revival in 2015, a stellar showcase for Bernstein's tunes, and thought I'd pass along no less than four numbers that I consider to be classics. Imagine hearing any of these and deciding they should be cut, let alone replaced with new songs. Yeah, he attached links to I Can Cook Too, Lucky to Be Me, Lonely Town, and Some Other Time. I only had a chance to skim them, but I definitely got a sense that they were good tunes. I look forward to giving those a more thorough listen. We appreciate that note, Jordan. We also heard from Steve Parsons in Longmont, California, a longtime listener. He was responding to my recommendation last week of 
the new documentary Knock Down the House, which is available on Netflix. It's about four first-time Democratic candidates, all women, running primary challenges against long-serving incumbents. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a huge focus of the film. And in my recommendation, I talked about that decision to focus on her and how I was curious about the decision by the director, Rachel Lears, to do that. Was it based on the fact that she has become this media star, this political star? Was it based on the fact that she won and so that shifted things? Steve writes in and says he had the opportunity to see Knock Down the House at the True False Film Festival in Columbia, Missouri this past March. There was a Q&A with the director, Rachel Lears, and she was asked this very question about why AOC was so heavily featured and why more time wasn't spent with the other three women. Her response was that, unfortunately, it was just a factor of time and money. Lears and her team were living and working in New York where AOC was running, and it was way easier and cheaper to film her and follow her around than any of the others, so they ended up with way more footage of her. She said it wasn't a function of AOC having one or her looks or her personality or anything other than pragmatics. And I'm, of course, willing to give Lears the benefit of the doubt. It worked out certainly in her favor. Yeah, that sure. Based on those pragmatic choices, they followed the one who ended up blowing up the way she did. Thank you, Steve, for that note. Josh has already mentioned filmspotting.net slash events. That's where we post show-related events that you may need to hear about, meetups and such. We also often are giving away free movie passes. We just gave away a bunch of passes to the Chicago Critics Film Festival screening of The Nightingale. A lot of interest in those passes here in the Chicago area. This is the latest from Jennifer Kent, who made the great horror film The Babadook. New screening opportunities come up often, sometimes between shows. We don't always get a chance to mention them here. So if you're in the Chicago area and you're interested in free movie passes, whether run of engagement or advanced screenings, filmspotting.net slash events is the place to go. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a Film Spotting t-shirt. A few weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. You gonna tell me to stay away from your girl? Well, if I had to do that, she wouldn't be my girl. Hmm. Well, then I guess you've got nothing to worry about, do you? Cyclops. It must just burn you up that a boy like me saved your life, huh? Gotta be careful. I might not be there next time. Oh, and Logan, stay away from my girl. That is James Marsden's Scott Summers, also known as Cyclops, and Hugh Jackman's Logan slash Wolverine in 2000's X-Men. Adam, if I hadn't said Cyclops, could you have identified him? Absolutely. Really? I always like Cyclops. You know your Cyclops. I don't okay. know why. It wasn't because of the movie, but even when I read X-Men comic books, okay. I like Cyclops. Interesting. Not as much as Wolverine. Well, of course not. 2000's X-Men, written by David Hayter, directed by Brian Singer. That massacre was part of our summer movie preview a few weeks back, and I guess nobody got the name change reference that no, you put in No, I can explain. There. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I thought I was being clever, and apparently I was a little bit too clever. I changed Logan. It immediately made me think of Logan's run. So I changed Logan to York, as in Michael York, the actor who played Logan in that film. Francis just happens to be the name of another major character in that film who's played by Richard Jordan. So Deep that's where I there. was going. At least from the entries I saw, nobody identified that. I did like William Evans' entry. He wrote in identifying Brian Singer as the director, but he just gave us the B and the S and a bunch of asterisks. Basically, a, just didn't fan, even want to huh? name Brian Singer, okay. which I certainly understand. In terms of tie-ins to that episode, we got many. 
Jeff from Olympia, Washington, said there weren't many tie-ins I could figure out from this unmistakable scene. However, this is your summer movie preview. And since Dark Phoenix premieres on June 7, one question you could ask is if this series, the X-Men First Class series, will meet the same dismal end as the previous trilogy, which also ended with an adaptation of the legendary Dark Phoenix saga. That version, 2006's X-Men The Last Stand, was directed by the god-awful Brett Ratner, who proceeded to ruin the story, taking great liberty with the characters and allegedly sexually harassing female cast members. That's a low bar. Let's hope Dark Phoenix can clear it effortlessly. Yeah, Dark Phoenix writer-director Simon Kinberg also wrote X-Men, The Last Stand. Our producer Sam notes that. Jeff actually continues, there's another tie-in. James Marsden played one of the two characters in The Scene You Massacred, Cyclops. He's in the anticipated summer movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is set in 1969, six years after the original X-Men comic was published, and possibly, I'd have to check my research, the year that comic went on hiatus until 1975. Which we all intended. Michael Roche from Leonia, New Jersey, said Jean Grey has gone by the moniker Marvel Girl at times in the comics, which makes Dark Phoenix, for all intents and purposes, the third 2019 film centering around a comic book character named Marvel, if you consider that Shazam was originally named Captain Marvel before a rights dispute. Wow, we're really digging deep. Chris Massa Minute Massa in Pittsburgh writes, Another tie-in is that Film Spotting Nation recently and wisely voted for Logan to have a spot in next year's Film Spotting Madness. That's true. We did pit Logan against Deadpool in that battle for a spot in Film Spotting Madness 2020 Best Films of the 2010s. We also heard from Eric Jensen in Edgewater, New Jersey. 2000s X-Men, when superhero movies stood for something, when they weren't just about setting up whole universes. Or maybe I'm remembering the excitement from 12-year-old me getting to see my favorite superhero, Wolverine, on the big screen. Maybe so. Jasmine from Ames, Iowa, closes us out. We often talk about superhero movies and how much better the special effects have become, even as recently as Avengers Endgame, with the new portrayal of Hulk. But this massacre theater is also proof of how much the dialogue has improved. I knew this one right away, and I think it's because the writing is so bad, it stuck with me all these years. Hey, I... I kind of like that stay away from my girl line. I thought that was clever. Jasmine and I don't see eye to eye on it, I guess. And right there, if I was smarter, I would make a pun off of Cyclops. Instead, I'm just going to move on and we're going to announce the winner of Massacre Theater. It ended up being semi-brimming. Josh, reach in. From the semi-brimming hat, we get... Alfredo Gutierrez. He's in Compton, California. Congratulations, Alfredo. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t shirt. Do we go right into the sex? I need some more Is that all right? You, you don't need a rehearsal? No, it's okay. I can do it. Okay. Then we'll shoot the rehearsal. Great. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and I'm just going to say, This is probably the part I've always been born to play. And Josh, I'm going to say, despite your prodigious acting talents, a part you never could pull off in a million years. No, no. High bar here. High bar. So we'll see what I can do. I want this, your challenge is, I want this to be distinct. I believe you did this in a scene earlier Mm. from your sports announcer. Okay. Hmm. Don't don't fall back to sports well, announcer. I don't even remember that scene. <laughs> okay. Oh, so better. <laughs> I don't know if I will do that or not. We will point out that it ties in with a topic that we've discussed already in a little bit of detail on this week's show. Sam picked this, or was it you, Josh, who picked out the scene? Um, I think I found this one. Yeah. Okay. I think it's a great choice. It does kind of violate my 
basic principle usually with Massacre Theater, which is I think that there is kind of a giveaway in it that even if you had never seen this movie, you should be able to place it. So maybe not as tough as I want it to be, but then again, why does this have to be tough? It shouldn't be tough. No. Last edition was very tough. So it's okay if we ease up this time. Okay. I'm ready. You're going to give me the action. And action. These children are going to the most glamorous of all summer camps, Camp Mohawk. There's a two-year waiting list, and every child has to be voted in. On top of all that, it costs $1,000 a week to go to Camp Mohawk. The question is, is it worth $1,000 a week? It sure is. It's the best darn camp there is. Well, are you connected with Camp Mohawk? Well, I think so. I'm the program director, Jerry Aldini. Well, how do you justify $1,000 a week? Well, we have some special programs. We're doing Shakespeare in the Round again this year, of course. Our our political roundtable, Henry Kissinger, will appear. Yasser Arafat is going to come out, spend a weekend with the kids, just rap with them. That's amazing. And the kids wanted animals, so this year each camper will stalk and kill his own bear in our private wildlife preserve. Are you sure the children can can hack that? We'll see. And And scene. scene. That was very distinct from Sports Reporter. I hope so. Good job. There was there was just a hint. There was just a hint there, Josh, at one point of who you were going for. Did I did I get a syllable? I always go for at you least might one have syllable. A syllable. Write in and tell us which syllable Josh got right imitating that very well-known actor. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, May 28th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Socrates. Hey, we know that name. Yeah. Hey, look him up. Oh, it's under Socrates. Oh, yeah. Socrates. The only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. That's us, dude. Oh, yeah. Let's bag him. Yeah. Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves as Bill S. Preston, Esquire, Ted, Theodore, Logan in 1989's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's been 30 years since many of us had our introduction to Keanu Reeves, though his acting credits go back to 84, 1987's River's Edge, and 1988's Dangerous Liaisons, a couple of other notable supporting performances. As of this date, maybe it will change with John Wick 3. No Oscar nominations for Keanu Reeves, but he does have, absurdly, seven Razzie nominations for Worst Performance of the Year. I'm assuming maybe... Maybe a devil's advocate in there. Maybe even a sweet November. I'm not sure. Well, now I'm worried. I didn't cross-reference my top five list with the Razzie noms. It could be Razzie-worthy, your top five. (laughs) So we got this email from Eric Nelson in Racine, Wisconsin, as if I already didn't feel a ton of pressure to deliver a good top five. That's just every week. And then on top of it, it's Keanu, and I want to do him justice. Eric says he's going to add to the stakes to our list. My son's name is Keanu. Eric tells us, as a multi-generational film spotting family, Keanu will be listening. Obviously, he's very interested in his namesake's filmography, but since he's only 10, he's only seen the Bill and Ted movies. So your list will help shape his expectations of what it means to be named Keanu. Oh, wow. Hopefully this episode will help him decide for himself if we were mad when we gave him that name. To raise the stakes even higher, and at this point, I'm starting to wonder if Eric's just having some fun with us, but I'm willing to go with it. Eric says his older brother, Vigo 
believes he has the better namesake. No way. Maybe he does, but I trust you will do right by Keanu and make my youngest son proud of his moniker. The good news is, if a respectable list of Keanu moments doesn't exist, my son will have plenty of time before Father's Day to purchase a worst father ever (laughs) trophy for me. That might just happen, Eric. And if this is true, I implore you, do not show Vigo Green Book. Please. (laughs) Don't. No, do he, he really doesn't need any of that in his life. So with that added pressure, thank you so much, Eric. Josh, are you ready to dive into our top five Keanu Reeves moments? Give us some background on how you approached it. Okay, well, I'm a little thrown off now by, by that email. Um, what I did come to realize as I was looking through some of these almost 100 films that he's made, and obviously the ones I've seen, is that there are almost, there are a couple phases of Keanu, it seems like. And they're not necessarily, they're sort of in chronological order, but as he's gotten older and done more work, he's melded them all in some good performances. So I think you've got the comic dude, who we've already heard from, you've got the action star, Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to call him a philosophy minor. I don't think I want to go so far as to say he majored in philosophy. I love it. But I think he dabbled. I think he dabbles throughout his career. (laughs) So now, like I said, when you mix those, I think you get some really interesting stuff that makes him unique. Mm -hmm. So hopefully my list is going to mix those up. I'm going to start at number five with an early scene, an early film of his parenthood. And it's the moment where he's discussing fatherhood with Diane Wiest. Now, our friend Wendy Fox Weber, when I asked for suggestions on Facebook, this was she put this up really early and a lot of people flocked to it. People love this scene. And as a matter of fact, I did remember in the back of my head when I was just starting to think about this, didn't do any research. I, I remember thinking he had a good moment in parenthood. I don't remember what it was. And so Wendy posted this and that was it. It was exactly it. This is when Wee's mom is discussing her troubled younger son with Reeves. Now Reeves plays her older daughter's boyfriend. Can I speak frankly, no holds barred? Please. That is one messed up little dude. You sure we can talk straight? Um... A few months ago, Gary got his first boner. You know what that is? If memory serves. Oh, great. Anyway, since then, he's been, uh, slapping the salami. No offense. No. Apparently, he's going for a world record. Chicken's burning. Oh! Oh! Damn, that looked good, too. Anyway, uh... This is early in his career. He maybe oversells the lines a little bit. He's definitely in exaggerated dude mode. He's playing that up still. But there's an authenticity and a sincerity. I think that's an important word for Reeves uh, that is in this moment as well. And weirdly, I think you feel it most... When he's doing those exaggerated dudisms, for some reason, there's he wraps a sincerity inside them yeah. that sells it. And, you know, that sincerity can be a double-edged sword in his career. I think if we did look at those Razzie performances, we'd probably find, my guess is, that's where the material doesn't match the sincerity. And he can end up looking kind of silly. But the sincerity is also the bedrock of his best performances. And I think it's crucial to making the scene in Parenthood work. Hmm. So – 
Parenthood is one of my four Keanu Reeves regrets. That doesn't mean there's only four movies I haven't seen, but looking over his filmography, there were four that, you that I was hoping to. I yeah. somehow might be able to fit in before this top five. It didn't happen. Parenthood, a movie I feel like was on all the time when I was younger, and I've seen many scenes of it, sure. but never in one viewing. So for now, a regret. I will point out with my list before we jump in that I truly did focus more on moments versus scenes or larger sequences. And what I mean by that is I looked for choices that Keanu definitely made versus choices that were maybe primarily made by a director. I also, as a sort of guiding principle here, I love your categories. I looked at a different type of category. I went to the expert on Keanu Reeves, who we're going to hear from during this list. Angelica J. Bastien, the writer who has been a guest here on the show at least three times, maybe four times. And she is widely known as an aficionado and appreciator of Keanu Reeves. And in fact, in 2016, wrote over at Brightwall Dark Room an appreciation of Reeves called The Grace of Keanu Reeves. And she had sort of four subdivisions that she used in order to break up that assessment of his acting. And really, that was what she was trying to do was say, you know what, we've all kind of taken him for granted. Let's actually discuss how truly good of an actor he is. So I used those four categories and kind of applied them to my favorite Keanu Reeves roles. And in thinking about it, I started with six that I thought were kind of the definitive Reeves roles or characters, and four of them did cross over with my top five favorite Reeves movies overall. And if you thought I was going to find room on here for Jack Traven from Speed, maybe a scene with Sandra Bullock, when I can include another Keanu-Sandy romantic pairing, well then, you don't know me very well, because of course, I had to make room for the lake house <laughs> in my top five. And for the part from Angelica's essay that I think really pairs nicely with The Lake House. This is the movie, of course, that we famously fought on. And we, I mean, Sam, the original co-host here on the show, we famously fought about. He couldn't believe I loved this movie as much as I do. And rewatching scenes from it in preparation for this list, I only fell in love with it even more. <laughs> Perhaps the only fight over the lake house there has ever been. Ever been, probably. But, but for the record, and I think I've said this before, you're right. You are you are correct. See, I wasn't house, sure about that. Yeah, lake house is, is a, yeah, it's, it's fine. Well, now I know it's I'm not, in trouble. It's nothing to really get worked up <laughs> See, about. See, now but. I know I'm in trouble if you're on my side. <laughs> I'm pretty worked up about it. This, the movie, of course, about two people who fall in love over letters they write to each other from the same lake house, but two years apart. So they're somehow through some mystical connection, they're able to communicate with each other and fall in love. And the part of Angelica's essay that I thought made the most sense here was modern loneliness. Angelica says, when looking closer at Keanu's character, loneliness comes into focus as a thematic preoccupation. He's often disconnected from the world around him, forging relationships only with intense effort or by accident. While he's a great romantic lead, more so in films where romance isn't the main plotline, I think he's even better suited to moments when he's wading through the cold, dark waters of spiritual isolation. So Angelica uses Constantine as her example, and that's one of my other four regrets. What I know about it, it's probably a much better one. If you're talking about cold, dark waters of spiritual isolation, then The Lake House and The Lake House obviously is a romantic movie. That is the main plot line here, but only sort of because, of course, this isn't a movie where we ever really get to watch, except for one scene, the two lovers 
in love. They're disconnected. They're separated by this seemingly insurmountable existential situation. And Angelica talked about relationships that are forged only with intense effort or by accident. We've got a time-traveling mailbox. He certainly was not looking for love, and yet it came looking for him somehow. And they are both disconnected and lonely. He's estranged from his father, played by Christopher Plummer. That loneliness is what brings them each to the lake house at different times. And yes, I considered the scene where we do see them connect. Not a spoiler. It's Kate's birthday in the movie. They have a dance. They have a kiss. It's very touching. But the Keanu moment in the lake house that really destroys me is just him. And it's without dialogue. And I think that is fitting for this list because we're both probably going to have a lot of choices where he doesn't really need to say anything at all. I mentioned the father played by Christopher Plummer. In this moment, he's just passed away. They have a contentious and they've had a complicated relationship. At one point earlier in the film, Keanu's character says that he spent years trying to forget him or forgive him. And he opens his father's memoir, or maybe it's just a book about his father. And he sees a picture of the lake house, a black and white picture of the lake house, with a man and a young boy standing in front of it. And the caption says, Simon Weiler with his son Alex at their lake house project. That's obviously Keanu's character. Alex is a young boy standing with his father. And the first reaction Keanu has at seeing the picture is this heavy sigh, almost like all of his breath has just been expelled from him. And then when he sees the caption, and we know from his point of view shot, he lets out this, this awe that's this involuntary reaction, that kind of awe you let out when you are so overwhelmed by a moment, your body just has to express something, even if it's completely unintelligible. And then the tears do come. I know that this scene and this movie are not going to be probably included in most people's pantheon of Keanu films, but it is a scene that really resonates with me and that Keanu renders with total restraint. There's not a hint of showiness to this scene that really could have been a showy one. It's a very contemplative film, which I think plays plays to his strengths in the way that you're discussing. And Constantine, I'm glad you brought it up. Not going to make my list, but uh, another film of his that I like as well, I think he's quite good in and has he has a stoicism there that I think probably informs a lot of what he brings to the John Wick pictures, mm. actually, or would in later years. Okay, I'm going to actually go with a scene, a line of dialogue in my number four pick. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. This comes from the same year as Parenthood, 1989. Somewhat similar character, though obviously far more broadly comic. This is, he's one of these two high school slackers who use a time machine to help them get a good grade on a history project. Among the sublimely silly moments here is that observation about being dust in the wind, and Reeves Ted makes it while discoursing with none other than Socrates. You mean Socrates. One of the things as a person who has trouble with pronunciation, I appreciate about this scene. I'm Bill. This is Ted. We're from the future. Socrates. Mm. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with him. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Again, it's the sincerity and really the belief that he has in the power of the word dude here that gives this gag a little bit of heft. Broad comedy, yeah, but what I like is the winking hint this early that Reeves' characters are almost always thinkers of some sort in their own way. I can see Ted taking a philosophy course, you know, probably 
at his local community college, but still he'd be there. He'd attend. He'd be into it. He'd have good things to say. Mm -hmm. And Reeves builds on that later in his career. By the way, Bill and Ted face the music. That's coming out next year. Another sequel reuniting Reeves and Alex Winter. Not sure if we need that, but... Who knows? We'll find out. I did just rewatch this movie in the past month or so with my kids because a couple of my sons in particular love history and historical figures. And man, they they just lapped it up. Did it kill? I definitely (laughs) thought about a couple scenes from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So you said my last choice was a contemplative movie. And I would say that maybe if you were looking for the exact opposite of contemplative movie, the dictionary would give you Point Break, <laughs> directed by Catherine Bigelow. And for this pick, I'm going with this bit from Angelica's essay where she talks about him as an action star. And she puts in parentheses, a certain baggage. Here she's talking about John Wick. She says, Wick is cut from the same cloth as Alain Delon's assassin in Le Samurai, whose cool stoicism and impressively styled badassery yields a heavy influence. But while Delon and his kin seem sharp and cold like cut glass, Wick is powered by something altogether different. Longing, loss, connection. In Keanu's hands, Wick isn't void of emotion or struggling with its first pangs, but brimming with it. Okay, so Johnny Utah is a very different character than John Wick, and he plays those characters very differently. But when I think about that idea, an action hero who's brimming with emotion, I do come back to Johnny Utah, and this is really that transition. He's he's brimming. Johnny is brimming. Exactly. With what? We can throw out a lot of different words, but this is that transition from Ted to the action star we now so know and love. And all those things she mentioned, longing, lost connection— Those aren't things that Johnny Utah seems to know anything particularly about. Not that he doesn't have his contemplative moments. There's maybe one or two in the film. But I would argue that maybe Keanu, too, as an actor, wasn't really ready at that age to embody those things. Not in any way that would feel earned or authentic, as you've said earlier. And I think that word's going to come up at least one or two more times in this top five. What he did have, though, what Keanu and what Johnny Utah had at that point, though, was overflowing earnestness, untiring energy and enthusiasm. Like Johnny Utah as his boss, the captain or whatever, refers to him at one point, he's a real blue flame special. So the scene I chose, and there were so many to pick, (laughs) is the one where he gets in a fight with Pappas, his partner, played by the great Gary Busey, pretty early in the film, where Pappas has decided He's pretty much giving up. He's got a theory about who these ex-president bank robbers might be, but there's really no point in pursuing it, and the earnest Keanu is not going to hear any of that. Okay, fine. You've given up. Fine. It doesn't mean I have to. Hey, hey, listen. Forget about it, kid. They are ghosts. Yeah, of course. What am I thinking? If you couldn't crack it with all your years of experience, it's impossible to conceive that I might have something to offer, right? Well, maybe I can do better than some over-the-hill burnout. Watch your mouth. Maybe you ought to just take some early retirement right now and get some rent-a-cop night security job. Tell mom stories. Listen, you snot-nosed little shit! I was taking shrapnel and caisson while you were crapping in your hands and rubbing it on your face! You mad? Yeah, I'm mad! Good and mad, Dad! What do you want to do about it? Feels good, doesn't it? Like you're still alive, right? Yeah! Well, since you're still alive and you're not in the box just yet, why don't you tell me this theory of yours and we'll go get these guys? <sighs> okay, hot shot. You want to nail the bank robbers and be a big hero? Definitely. Definitely. So I just love how Utah deliberately 
revs Busey up there in the scene to get him to the point that he wants him to be at. And that great line delivery of you mad and then feels good like you're still alive. And even at the end, when Pat says you want to nail the bank robbers and be a big hero, the way he says definitely is just so perfectly Keanu. He wants to be a hero, this character. He isn't really interested in looking cool, which I appreciate. And as I think about Keanu's characters, none of them are really interested in looking cool, which is precisely what makes them so cool. Sure. Yeah. We would have been in trouble if we had not included Point Break. So I'm glad you went there. (laughs) I got us covered. Let's stick with the action vein for now. My number three pick, it's actually the pick the favorite Keanu Reeves moment of Angelica Jade Bastien, vulture critic, and perhaps the foremost Keanu expert working today. Let's hear from her. Hi, this is Angelica Jade Bastien calling in uh, with my cats, apparently, about my favorite Keanu moment. Uh, It's hard to pick one moment in Keanu's, at this point, 30-year career. He's an amazing actor to me. I love him, obviously. But I'm going to go right now with the club scene in the first John Wick, which is a beautiful, neon-drenched, nearly 10-minute sequence that demonstrates, in my mind, what makes Keanu the best action star in Hollywood working right now, which is a balletic brutality, that surprising grace and intimacy, and a touching vulnerability that brings depth to the mayhem of the film. Uh, So that's my choice. Again, this is Angelica J. Bastian from Vulture. This is one of John Wick's central set pieces. It's when Reeves infiltrates the nightclub slash spa in search of this Russian gangster who's killed his dog. It's my only real action scene pick, so it's a good chance here to kind of dig into a little bit more, at least for me, what makes him unique as an action star. I think Angelica perfectly captures that. As he works his way through these henchmen, it's with a methodical precision. He's not hurried. Even when the chaos breaks out and everyone knows he's there and things get really intense, each strike is also personal. It's tied to the dead dog and the loss of his wife that the dog represents, Mm -hmm. of course. Each bullet counts. And that's something for me that was a trademark of the first John Wick film. The violence meant something there. I think that the grace Angelica mentions is also tied to Keanu's dudeness. You know, it gives him a serenity that made him a unique action star. And I also think this calm at the center that he has is it's not unlike what you find in a lot of wuxia films. And that, of course, made him a natural fit for the kung fu in The Matrix. There's a brilliant moment in this scene, too, that I just want to highlight when he comes up from the underground spa into the nightclub. He's walking onto the dance floor, and then behind him is a screen that's projecting these hypnotic swirls. And it's just the perfect match here of actor mm-hmm. and atmosphere. It's it's an action star who operates not by brute force, not by frenetic energy, but by hypnosis. He's, he's kind of hypnotizing the guys he's after before he gets them. Mm -hmm. So really great action scene on its own face, but 
Keanu Reeves makes it work. I love that sequence. It definitely strongly considered by me. I decided to go with a different moment, though, and a different choice by Keanu from John Wick for my number three. And in some ways, I found it challenging to pick a Keanu moment from John Wick because a lot of my favorites are scenes that Keanu isn't in. It's all the scenes when other people are talking about John Wick that I really enjoy from the film. But this is another excerpt from Angelica talking about Keanu as an action star, a certain baggage. He sells every punch given or received, every thrown knife, every ounce of blood spilled. There is weight to the action in the film. You see the toll it takes on his body and at times a minute shift of his expression, acknowledging how age affects performance. When he's already wounded and gets into a fight for his life with Ms. Perkins, we feel it. Definitely thought about that scene, too, in the hotel where fighting is forbidden. But I actually want to apply Angelica's theory about the action having a weight and how age affects performance to a moment of dialogue in John Wick. And this is the I'm back sequence, but it's not that line that really matters for me. It's the buildup to it. It's a scene where I don't even know where he is, some nondescript warehouse, of course, like you see in these movies. And he's been caught somehow at this point. He actually, I think, is in handcuffs. He's sitting in a chair. And the bad guy, Vigo, Michael Nyquist, is taunting him a little. It's his son that... Keanu's John Wick is out to kill and he's surrounded by henchmen and Vigo says to him it was just a car it was just a dog and this is the moment where the action hero usually says something really cruel and witty and instead we get something really raw and emotionally vulnerable. And so I'm going to let the scene play out because I can't do this moment justice, certainly imitating Keanu Reeves as John Wick. But what I really want you to key into is the transition, the moment where everything changes. Baba Yaga. It was just a car, just a dog. Just a dog. Vigo. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift for my wife. In that moment, I received some semblance of hope. An opportunity to grieve unalone. And your son took that from me. Stole that from me. Kill that from me! People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So you can either hand over your yeah. son, or you can die screaming alongside him! Again, he's totally exposed emotionally here, talking about his wife dying and losing everything, and the dog arriving on his doorstep, a semblance of hope the opportunity to grieve unalone. And again, he's talking to the bad guy who really couldn't care less in a room full of henchmen re-watching it. I almost felt like the room could break out laughing at how weak and maybe pitiful he's acting there in that moment. And then we do get the flip. We get the complete vocal change in John Wick. And it's a 10 to 12 second close-up. So the transformation from the vulnerable Wick to the vengeful Wick isn't about a shot or an edit. It's all in Keanu's performance. When you hear him say, and your son took that from me, the weight of it 
It's delivered with a growl that seems to come from the depths of hell. The worst pain mixed with scorn that absolutely explains everything Wick has been doing and everything Wick is going to do from here on out. And that it's really about so much more than just a car or just a dog. And I think that a less mature actor, a less mature Keanu Reeves, couldn't have imbued that line with that weariness and ache. I don't think that a younger Keanu may have had the vocal control even to go down to the register he goes to here. And I'll use the word cool again. There's a sinister coolness to it, but also an anguish that is crucial to the whole film. Yeah, that scene could have been played all as a threat, right? From the beginning. Exactly. And and he gives it more shading than that. So for my number two, let's go back further earlier in his career to My Own Private Idaho in 1991. This is the same year as Point Break, also the same year as the Bill and Ted sequel. And, you know, so a star by now, but still early in his career. And I'm shocked at how confident he is in My Own Private Mm -hmm. Idaho, opposite a crushingly vulnerable River Phoenix. This is Gus Van Sant's portrait of teen hustlers in the Pacific Northwest. Now, Reeves plays Scott Favor, the errant son of Portland's mayor, sort of a variation on Prince Hal, the wayward monarch-in-waiting from Henry IV Parts One and Two. I think Reeves really deftly handles the Shakespearean language that Vincent suddenly breaks into here when he just, you know, makes a foray into the bard. I'm not so fond of that conceit, but yeah. I think Reeves handles well, we it well. When we get a soliloquy, he's pretty good at it. Yeah, Better he than really he is, is maybe in Much Ado About Nothing. Well, perhaps, perhaps. For some reason, it works here. But he's also at the same time, you know, something of a rock for Phoenix's runaway, Mike Waters, when we do get to those standard scenes. I think it's something about the fact that Scott, the Reeves character, he can leave this lifestyle at any time. So he's engaging in it with this casual confidence. Mm-hmm. He doesn't need it. Whereas for Mike, it's a different situation. There's some really wonderful exchanges between Mike and Scott. And I'm going with sort of a throwaway moment for my pick. They're riding the motorcycle together and Scott stops just to offer this little observation. Hey, Mike. How long have I been here on this street, on this crusade? Oh, well, I came back to town around three and a half years ago, and that's when I met you, so it's, it's been... It's been three years, Mike. Yeah, almost four years. That's a long time. What I'm getting at, Mike, is that we're still alive. Yeah. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. It's incredibly obvious. <laughs> they can drop a big old bomb in the city, you know what we would do? Take shelter. What I'm getting at, Mike, is we're still alive. Yes, it's incredibly obvious, as Mike tells him, but it also captures, first off, it's capturing the wonder of their survival, right? Having, taking so many risks in how they've been living, but they are alive. They've survived. At the same time, he manages to imbue it in a way that it captures just the wonder of their youth and the wonder of just anyone being alive, anyone at any time. Uh, He encapsulates all of that with this one line reading. And I think it could have been trite, it could have been silly, but this is one of those moments where Reeves somehow makes it sound wise. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's, you know, on the surface, a word that people associate with him, but it's something I get from his best performances. Yeah, I love my own private Idaho, especially because of those parallels to Henry IV parts one and two. And I chose a moment from that film as well for my number two. I wondered if you might go with this scene and it was going to be interesting to hear how we... (laughs) characterized what made it special. You went in a different direction. I'm going with the moment where they have set out from Portland 
to find Mike's mother. They're going to Idaho, his estranged mother. And one night, it's early in the journey, might even be the first night. It's been a while since I've seen the film, but they're sleeping just outside in the wilderness. And this is the scene where Mike, River Phoenix's character, admits his love for Scott. I will say that this scene would probably be a better choice for a top five list paying tribute to River Phoenix than Keanu, because it's very much his scene. That's the majority, kind of yeah. where I came down on it after yeah. watching it. Yeah, well, let's so see good. if I can convince you. The majority okay. of the lines are his. The camera certainly favors him with Keanu being secondary in the frame. And it is this heavy emotional moment for Mike, this confession, how he could love a guy without getting paid for it, unlike Scott. And furthermore, he loves Scott and that he wants to kiss him. But I think it's worth pointing out that Keanu's willingness to be secondary to be so still and subtle and not do anything to draw attention away from Phoenix's performance is noteworthy. And of course, keeping with my pattern here, I wanted to find a way to connect this back to what Angelica said. She talked about the crossroads of virile and vulnerable. There's that word again. She writes, I found myself attracted to Keanu's presence because of the way he marries typically masculine and feminine qualities. He's both intense and vulnerable, kind and tough, honest and and mysterious. And I think we really see that encapsulated all in this scene. Masculine and feminine qualities, he's playing a character who certainly doesn't fit traditional notions of masculinity and that he has sex with men. And even his physicality in this scene, I think is interesting. Phoenix is this tight ball of energy who's sitting, his head's down, his arms and legs are both crossed. He looks so tense. He says goodnight and then kind of wraps up into a ball like a feral animal. And Keanu is just sort of laying by the fire, his leg perfectly propped up, hand touching his waist kind of casually. And he's so angular and elegant with the flame, giving him some light. But there is mystery and toughness as well. He's not mean, but he's certainly more stoic and he's more at peace with his approach to life than Mike is. And he's neither reacting harshly to Mike nor being swept away by Mike's admission of his love. And then the moment that slays me is Keanu at the end of all this, there's a long pause and Keanu scoots over and he makes room next to him and he says, Let's go to sleep. And Mike comes over and they hug. And Gus Van Zandt holds on that moment in a pretty long close-up where we're really just seeing their hair in the dark with the firelight flickering. And Keanu punctuates the scene by putting his hand on the back of Mike's head to comfort him. That touch, I think, is really the vulnerability finally coming through in Scott. It's the humanity coming through in Scott just in that gesture. Yeah, Scott almost, in all their interactions, he almost always gives Mike a moment like that. He's He is at a distance. He's drawing that line between them, but not in a way that's, it never feels like a complete rejection mm -hmm. somehow because right. he still cares for him at some level and always pauses to make that clear. So yeah, even if this is River Phoenix's scene, uh, Keanu's, the way Keanu plays it as well is why it works so wonderfully. And I'm glad you did include it because so many people brought this one up. Oh, really? This is, yeah, this is one that really touches people for good reason. I so mean, it's very affecting. Not that it matters at all because I have no problem stealing from our very smart listeners, but I know that you posted on Twitter and asked people to share. I literally was so busy. I didn't look at a single entry. So I had no idea what people were chiming in yeah, with. This one, I felt kind of bad thinking, man, my list might be way off. No, but. no, no. I think this one came up and it might be the other one would be parenthood came up really? quite a bit. Okay. So yeah. All right. My number one had to be a woe. 
I'm going to not only defend the woe, I'm going to elevate it. I'm going to attempt to raise what we do here on Filmspotting. We elevate the woe. There is a YouTube compilation, of course, of every woe in Reeves' career, and I think the count on that is up to 112. So this is something he had at the very beginning. It's crucial to his TED persona. I love that he never got too serious for it. I love that he never thought, I'm going to ditch that. I'm going to leave it behind. Mm -hmm. Um, But that he still employs it from time to time. So my woe, my number one Keanu Reeves moment is one of the subtler variations. It's from The Matrix. And it's when he almost whispers it after Lawrence Fishburne's Morpheus shows Reeves Neo how to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I do wonder if these became scripted at some point, you know, once he was cast, if mm. screenplays were kind of molded to to find a way to fit a woe in, or maybe they're all improvisation. Yeah, maybe Keanu just can't help himself. That, that's, I like that option. I hope it's like that. Whatever the case, I love this Matrix woe because it does manage to encapsulate all three of those phases that I had talked about in one single word. You've got the comedy. It's very funny. You've got the action context around it. And there's all of these philosophical implications that we dug into when we did our Matrix review earlier in this year, looking back at it. All those ideas, all those thoughts that make you, he's echoing exactly what your brain is doing throughout this movie. Uh, Sometimes all that needs to capture all that is a single whoa. Now, to say that this is the definitive Reeves moment is not an insult. It's not even a backhanded compliment. It's genuinely the most impressive example of the the distilled minimalism that makes him it makes him pretty great for sure makes him a totally unique screen presence absolutely can't argue with that a bit i'm so glad the woe got its due i'm going with the matrix as well probably not a shocker for my number one keanu reeves moment and my last reading here from angelica goes like this the subhead is transfixing stillness like gloria swanson greta garbo and the greatest of silent actors keanu is immense screen presence and keen understanding of communicating story through physicality albeit with a very modern inflection a simple glance or curled lip can unfurl lengthy character history or upend expectations but this image of odd blankness Affability but dim wit, worth only found in action films, ignores how purely cinematic his acting style is. For Keanu, acting isn't a mode of transformation, but a state of being. He transmutes story into flesh. I've read most of Angelica's piece over the course of this top five, but there's a lot more to glean from it. And if you're curious, we will link to it in the show notes for this episode over at filmspotting.net. But when I think about Keanu communicating story, communicating character through physicality and gestures, I immediately go to what is my single favorite moment in The Matrix. And I'm not sure it came up, actually, because it's a hard one to talk about. It's going to be hard to talk about here. You really just have to see it. But my single favorite moment, I'm calling his kung fu cockiness. We talked about in our Sacred Cow review, we did fairly recently, how authentic all of the physical elements have to be here for us to believe this world the Wachowskis have created. When he says, I know Kung Fu, he better be able to show us that he really knows Kung Fu. Whether we know the intricacies of the martial art or not, we can't be doubting Neo's abilities any more or less 
the Neo himself may be doubting his abilities. And you see from his first movement when Morpheus says, hit me if you can, you watch him get into position. And there's just no doubt right away that Keanu has done all the training. He knows exactly what to do. And Neo as a character may be slightly in awe in this moment of his own abilities, but he isn't questioning for a second that he has them. His movements, Keanu's movements, are instinctual. And as I said, of all the amazing set pieces in this film and the stunts and the action, no single moment in the movie brings me more joy than right after their first go at each other. And they spin to opposite sides and get into their fighting positions. And after posing for a second, Keanu does this incredible five second bit of movement where he pauses, then just kind of bounces up and down in place and smiles, yeah. <laughs> culminating with that little thing he does with his thumb where he wipes his nose, almost like he's wiping away some dust or sweat that isn't really there. It's this kind of just classic kung fu gesture, and he's still smiling the whole time. He is feeling himself in this moment. He's so impressed with his newfound skills that he just can't help but express how good that feeling is. And I think there is a, a coolness with which he pulls off those moves. That's one element that makes me enjoy that moment and that scene overall so much. But the cockiness is another because I think it's, again, that humanity coming through. He may be in a simulation, but he is not a machine. And he cannot deny the overwhelming awesomeness of being a kung fu expert, just all of a sudden having that ability any more than any of us would if we were suddenly imbued with that gift. We would be cocky too. I love it. Really, it just makes me smile as broadly as Keanu smiling in that scene every time I see it. So if you don't remember the exact moment I'm talking about, I will link to it over on our top five page. Go to filmspotting.net and click on lists. Yeah, it's a great moment. It's it's There's not a lot of enthusiasm in that movie, it's a very grim story in a grim world, so that does kind of stand apart. And maybe some recency bias at work here, both of us putting The Matrix at sure. number one, having seen it about a month or two ago. But but still, I think those are two good choices. Yeah, I mean, it feels right, it doesn't does. it, though? Yeah. I mean, it's The Matrix, and I think over time, that's still probably going to go down as the definitive Keanu movie, the definitive Keanu role. I don't have any honorable mentions. I put all my effort into these top five. I definitely love the sequence that you and Angelica both highlighted. I thought of all those great set pieces in John Wick. Did you have anything else you wanted to highlight? I'll just throw out one micro detail from John Wick chapter two, actually. It's the opening sequence when he finally slips into the driver's seat of the car that was stolen from him. And he kind of lets out this soft sigh and gently squeezes the steering wheel before oh, throwing yeah. it into drive. Yeah. That's that's sort of the, you know, the no dialogue, nothing but just a gesture type of moment you were talking about. And let me mention a few of those um, responses we got. These are from Twitter. Patrice Mobley suggested his flirtation with Diane Keaton in Something's Gotta Give. It shows a playfulness that isn't cheesy like his earlier roles with as much force as the violence of his current ones. Another suggestion here, we're back to the Matrix with the Stickman, Stickman Cinema. The ending to The Matrix, hangs up phone, puts on shades, grins at camera, another smile there, looks up, flies away, badass. And then Morgan Hislop, one more here, throughout his creepy turn as the motel owner in Neon Demon. That was one of those roles like, oh. I thought about it. Wow. He he's didn't know he was in this, and he's really good. He is. Really creepy. Yeah. Those are our top five Keanu Reeves moments. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net and that is our show that is our Keanu Palooza Keanu Stravagana Palooza's better okay 
Keanu Palooza. If you want more, head to the show archives where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005 over at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you what is the best film of 1979, Alien, Apocalypse Now, or other. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's hosted by critics Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. The Next Picture Show examines how classic films inspire and inform modern movies. So in part one, the roundtable takes a deep dive into a classic film and considers its legacy. Then in part two, they compare and contrast it with a modern successor. They're calling their latest pairing Political Affairs, so they're pairing the Charlize Theron Seth Rogen rom-com The Long Shot with 1993's The American President, that one directed by Rob Reiner, written by Aaron Sorkin and stars Michael Douglas and Annette Bening. The Next Picture Show drops every Tuesday at midnight so you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, you can visit filmspotting.net slash shop. To connect with Adam and I on Facebook and Twitter, Adam's at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And if you want to get the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, subscribe at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, A Dog's Journey. A dog finds the meaning of his own existence through the lives of the humans he meets. My love for Dennis Quaid is not going to get me to A Dog's Journey. The Sun is also a star out this weekend as well. Based on the YA novel, a teenager finds love 12 hours before her family is deported. Also out, of course, John Wick, Chapter 3, Parabellum. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, you can see All is True, the latest from director and star Kenneth Branagh. He is playing Shakespeare in that. Next week, we will share our top five films of 1979. We may also revisit our Sacred Cow review from three plus years ago of Alien on its 40th anniversary, maybe even share some feedback in response to that discussion. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Our music this week is from Josh Ritter. You can find more information at joshritter.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So I'll play it because, or you can, you know, it's the scene where he's like, he's like, uh, Maybe you should just retire, get some rent-a-cop night job and tell oh, yeah. Nam stories. And he yeah. says, you know, I was taking shrapnel and Nam while you were crapping in your hands. He says, you mad? Yeah, I'm mad. Good and mad? He says, and he says, feel good like you're still alive. One, one Man Massacre Theater. Yeah, it's I a One Man it. Massacre Theater. Okay. Um, <laughs> Let's just do all our clips that way should. for each other. I know. We should. <laughs> Reenactments just. instead of playing them. Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.